In the 2002 SDCF symposium panel entitled Magic to Do, the Director-Writer Relationship, Clifford Lee Johnson III sat down with Gabriel Barr, Susan Birkenhead, Brian Crawley, Greg Cotis, Andrew Lippa, Robert Longbottom, Susan H. Shulman, Scott Schwartz, and Janine Tesori to explore the creative processes involved in creating a new musical. The following program is a recording of the panel that took place. Hello, I'm SDC Director Daniel Sullivan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is ask Susan <laughs> about um, the first thing I'm going to do. Susan, I'd like for you and um, Ryan and Janine to talk a little bit about Violet, which um, three of you worked on and was produced at Claire Ice Rise. Um, so I'm just going to turn it over to you. Um, actually, I think we should start with Janine because, well, her, I, I know. <laughs> and then have some northerner come down and ask to get the rights for it. 
I was completely flat and black, so we looked like a word. <laughs> so, uh, but she was great about it. She really gave us a chance and got the rights. I quit my job at, as conductor, as associate, and Brian and I literally started um, with, with Susan right away. We, we just, as soon as we really got the clearance, we sat down with Susan and uh, started to do a, a spine, what I, you know, sometimes you just put kind of a, a, a spinal column literally together. It's like, you know your kid's going to change so many times, but let's just start somewhere. And that's, that's really the genesis of it. Right. Um, the, the, the amazing thing was, to, for me, was when they uh, came to me with this idea and I read the short story and I said, Janine, Ryan, it takes place on, on a bus. bus. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing takes place on a bus. And they both looked at me and went, yeah, we know. That's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I was amazed, I, I think, and so moved initially by the first couple of songs that they wrote together. And that's what really inspired me. I mean, I thought it was a wonderful short story. But initially, I really was having a hard time seeing it on the stage. Um, for many reasons, not just because it took place on a bus, but because it had very internal storytelling, and it wasn't a very plotted piece. It was a piece really about character and character discovery. So it was really the first three songs, I think, that started to give me um, a vision, a theatrical vision for the piece. And um, so, and then we took off from there, right? Uh, well, I was talking about how the, the director-writer relationship <laughs> was generated. You know, if you're if you're learning how to play tennis, you want to play with somebody who's better than you. Um, because you get a more challenging game and, and it's it's more fun. Well Susan of course was much further along in her career than I was. Um, you know, and further along with Janine, but not not the same disparity because I was pretty pretty much an unknown quantity. Janine and Susan had worked together before um, on Secret Garden. Janine was um, part of the musical staff there. So so Janine said right away, like let's we need to um, you know, get a get a director. I'm thinking of Susan because I think it'll keep us focused. It'll keep us writing towards deadlines, and we'll have um, a better chance of getting this done in two years than instead of five or ten. You know, with endless development hassles. And I thought, sure, that's that's great. Let's try. Um, and it was funny. Like the first. Uh, few meetings, I felt a little bit like I was on probation. I had to prove myself <laughs> because I was unknown. But there was that, it was that bus issue. I remember I said something, um, and this I think might have been after we wrote a couple of songs. I said, you know, it's like a life drawing class, and you wander around the room, and everybody's perspective on the same image is different. So it doesn't have to be the same, you know, grill of a bus that's facing you every time you come back to it. And Susan's eyes lit up a little, and I thought, okay, I'm in. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I have to ask, so you had a meeting, and how many meetings did you have before you actually started to write, and what did you write first, songs, or did you discuss plots, did you we, style, or? Once we all said, yeah, let's do it, which was pretty quick, I think, um, we, uh, we started to, there were songs, there were three songs up front. We wrote, the, we wrote that lullaby. It was the only song that survived. The lullaby. The lullaby. <laughs> right. And I remember Susan said, um, the, the story itself is filled with flashbacks. And so, you know, we, we meet at Susan's old apartment, and she said, let's put
Well, in chronological order, because the, the story itself was non linear. And let's just start from there, and we were just kind of swimming because, uh, you know, the, the bus was like anything, we, we haven't figured out really the central metaphor, any of that stuff. I mean, the, it, you know, I think that at one time, Brian and I were thinking, oh, the bus spins, and then the top flies off, and it goes this, and it's on a turntable, and, you know, cut to clear and there are people pushing buttons. <laughs> but it, because it got, in fact, as, as it got focused, it got simpler in its ideas, and that's because I think the three of us just constantly were asking the questions of, you know, what is the story that we're that we're telling and what central theme and just line it up and then the songs followed from there. I remember doing three things at once. I'm not sure what, what order everything happened because there was the... I think Janine and I both gravitated to our favorite moment because Janine wrote music first for Lay Down Your Head, which is the moment when Violet falls... <coughs> a soldier falls asleep on Violet's shoulder. And um, I wrote a lyric for the moment that I really liked um, where this woman was leaving her town and calling the people that live there stupid. And that sort of interested me. So that was like an early song. And I don't think that when we first met that that even had music. We just read the lyric. We played that song. And um, we spent the rest of that meeting, I think, just said, well, okay, well, let's list the, the beats in this story and what interests us and what do we want to musicalize. And after we do that, we can worry about, you know, what, what we want to follow what later. So that was all sort of at once. Yes, and there were many, many uh, plotting sessions because, as I said, the story itself does not have much plot, and we kept trying to to go back to the story and find moments of conflict that we could illuminate, that we could take beyond the story itself. Um, and I think we were fortunate in this case to have Doris, who basically was giving us this reading, but I think it's just generally very important that when you adapt something for the stage, that you can stay very true to the spirit of the piece, but not slavish to the storytelling. And I think that's very important because it's a narrative, and it's not a play, and it was written as a narrative. And I think constantly we were trying to take what was narration and what was internal thought and find theatrical ways to put that, uh, to make that, uh, to communicate that. Um, it also very interesting along the way and along the development. We had a we had a very good development situation with this. We had many opportunities. We were at uh, the O'Neill. We were at Playwrights. We were at Lincoln Center. So we had we had workshops and we had readings. And all the time, major things changed for us. I think one of the joys in this uh, collaboration was that nobody was very much afraid, um, or certainly learned not to be afraid, taking whole things and just throwing them away and going, you know what, this just doesn't work. It's nice, but it just doesn't work. And it was very difficult, especially for Act Two, to structure it because the, the original source material was not helpful to us there. So there was a lot of invention involved. And um, it's a little side note. I think it's, it's a, an interesting thing about writing a musical. It's all about rewrites. And you've heard this a million times, but it is the truth. Um, if you're constantly, constantly reworking the piece. And, on opening night at Clarence Horizons, Janine and Brian gave me a booklet this big called What Were We Thinking? All the songs that never made it to the final, you know, all the scenes that you know, and you went through and you read them in retrospect and you go. <laughs> but I think it's important that, that it was done. I mean if those if 
we didn't have that, we never would have had the final product. And that's the point. The point is to explore all the ideas and take them to their fullest, no matter how ridiculous they appear later on, because they often give you the clue to something else. And um, I think that was the, the greatest part of the relationship, to encourage each other to do that. Um, I think that um, you'll find that every single one of these teams of writers has, if they don't actually have a booklet like that, they have in their mind a drawer somewhere with songs and ideas that never actually made it. Um, you'll, as each of these artists describes how he or she worked on their particular show, each one will be different. Uh, there will be common themes, I'm sure, but uh, not only will each person's experience be different, I think each time one of them works on another project, it won't be quite the same, because each show will dictate its own, um, its own evolution. Uh, and I think that's fun. Um, and so we're going to turn to the next person, um, Robert Longbottom. Uh, surprise. Um, he uh, was the director of many, many shows, but I think we're going to talk about Sideshow first. Um, but I think the first reading of Sideshow happened at Manhattan Theater Club when it was called Songs of the Siamese Twins. <laughs> One for me. There you go. And um, so the first thing he did was change the title, I'm sure. Yes, he did. Exactly. And so uh, if you just want to go from there, were you on from the very beginning or did they approach you with... No, I, okay. I approached them. I saw this terrible movie when I was still in, in a road company at 42nd Street called Change for Life depicted these two ladies um, in a very unfortunate way that was kitschy and fun and a John Waters kind of thing, but there was something about that condition that they shared and uh, the honesty in which they lived that, that stayed with me. And I showed it to my friend Bill Russell, who had collaborated with me on a, a crazy off-Broadway thing called Pageant, and I said, does this speak to you? Do you think I'm crazy? And, and after a while, he said, no, I think it, it really is an interesting metaphor for what it means to uh, have duality in all of us, and to, to share a life with someone else, and what a great thing to, to think about as a Broadway musical. So we approached a composer who we both adored, Henry Krieger, who'd written Dreamgirls, and uh, shared this crazy idea with him. And he also loved it. We had no idea where to start, how to begin this. Um, it was never going to be a plot-driven evening. It was more a number of examinations of what it meant to share intimacy, sexual intimacy, uh, an on-stage career of all things. Because these girls actually did sing and dance. They were a huge sensation in vaudeville in the 20s, made a couple of movies, uh, namely Todd Browning's Freaks. And I was home. I loved it. I mean, I, I said, this is uh, speaks of my childhood, these girls, their condition, and the fact that they learned to tap dance, uh, sharing very compromised situation. So we, were, we came up with a, a title for the opening number uh, called Come Look at the Freaks. And once they identified that, and I had an idea of how to actually put these two girls on stage together in a believable way, that opened the door. But the journey was very long. It was about six years, uh, a terrible title that <laughs> Manhattan Theater Club had no interest in pursuing. Which we didn't blame them at the time, but it, we learned a great deal from it. Characters were Moved, other people were created to help tell the story. We were really lucky to do a workshop um, for six weeks on the stage of the Richard Rogers Theater, where our producer was able to get space for us and 
uh, the crew left us alone, and at the end of those six weeks, we basically put on a show. Uh, Robert Wagner designed uh, four sets of movable bleachers, which, depending on how I moved them around the stage, kind of took you to uh, backstage, onstage dressing rooms, and so forth. Um, we sort of didn't want the process to end because we had become such a, a loving family, the three of us, and was joined by David Chase, who was a musical supervisor, dance arrangements, and uh, vocals, and all of those things. So, yeah, I, did I understand right that the idea originated with you? Is that, is that what you were saying? I didn't yeah. have the idea for these two girls' life, but I thought right. to a musical about Daisy and Violet Hilton and, and see where we might go with that. Right. Did, would anybody else like it and would it you know, resonate? And is it, is, it a, is it a reasonable metaphor? Right. So it was my idea. And so there was, so you had that much of the idea, and then you turned it over to the writers, and they, at that point they, they went off and produced a draft, and you started the um, rewriting process after that. Right. Henry and Bill would work on, you know, a scene, and uh, then they would show it to me, and I would have comments, and they would have comments, and, and they'd either go back and rewrite some things, or we would agree it's terrific and move on to the next thing. But I was certainly not in the room with them when they wrote things, um, and. Uh, gave them their space to to create it. It was important for me to, to see the scene, to see the numbers, to see the dance. And if there were things they wrote that I said, I have a really hard time imagining that on stage. Can you help me with this? We would go back and revisit it. So mm -hmm. it was that kind of collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, Susan, I'm going to skip over to Gabe and Andrew because I have a master plan. I'll come back to you in just a minute, OK? Nothing, nothing personal. <laughs> um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I worked with um, Andrew Lippa and Gabe Barry on the Manhattan Theater Club version of The Wild Party. But I'm not going to add much to that conversation. I'm going to let you guys talk about it. Um, Andrew, how did the idea for The Wild Party come about, and at what point did Gabe come on? Um, in the end of 1995, I was looking for something to do to follow up uh, a small show that I had done that Gabe also directed at the Lamb Theater called John and Ten. And um, I was looking for something to do, and I went to a bookstore and was browsing through poetry sections, because at the time, I didn't have a lyricist I wanted to work with or, or wanted or had an idea that, you know, for anything. I, and I had never written lyrics before. And so I thought, well, I'll just write like a song cycle or, you know, something like that, or make, you know, cats. <laughs> and, um, and I was browsing through the poetry section and there was this really cool spine and I opened up this book with these really cool pictures called The Wild Party and it had um, a fuzzy red like inside part of the book, it was like half the bunny and, and it was so cool, you know, fuzzy red was me, it said me. Uh, and, and I read the poem in the store and it was like, my jaw sort of dropped to the floor and I was I was convinced that I had to write this show, and I've never had that experience before or since, and I hope to get it again one day in my life, that absolute out of the blue sort of bolt of lightning that says, you know, drop everything and do this. And um, I didn't have much of an everything to drop at the time, so. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we sought out, uh, sought out the right situation, and at the beginning of 1996, I started to write the show, and then I came to Lee, um, who had, offered his assistance in the past and said if I had any show I would like to talk about I should come to Manhattan Theater Club and I did and played a song or two for Lee and Lee was like write it and we'll, we'll do a reading and at the time it was so thrilling I was like I didn't even write anything and I was going to get a reading for it and, um, and so I kept writing I, I got the first act done in August of that year and uh, Gabe saw it 
Um, but at the time, I was, I was so driven by the piece itself and so um, naive because I was just writing the book, the music and the lyrics all by myself and, and nobody, I just, it felt like I was supposed to do it, you know, and I, I didn't feel like I wanted to work with anybody at that time. So I kept going and then Gabe came to me a, late, later in the next year and said that he had the opportunity to bring a piece to the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center and did the, I want to work on the Wild Party together and I was like, uh, you know, Eureka, and it was suddenly like, why didn't I think of that? And we started working on the piece, and, and that's really sort of how it all sort of came together, working together. Did you, at that point, did you just have the first act, or did you have a whole draft finished when you went up to the O'Neill, and did you finish it at the O'Neill? <clears throat> I had a whole, I had a whole draft mm -hmm. um, of a piece, and much like uh, Janine and Brian's book, What Were They Thinking? Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, we were, I wrote like five songs while I was at the O'Neill, and we chopped a lot of material, and all of that was working with Gabe, talking about, I remember when we first got there, the first night, you know, you get there on Sunday, and Sunday night we sat down talking, and, and Gabe and I had already worked together before, so we had a very close relationship in how we would work together, and he said, you know, I had a song that was where the title song was, and and it wasn't a very good song, and so he said, well, what if it were blah? You know, like, every time we work with a director, a director may just say something that isn't necessarily the idea, but they sort of make it go like that, you know, and then you go, oh, you know, and then you go into a poll and write it and come back and show them what you did, and it's kind of like looking in the mirror, like, do I look fat? You know, it's like, you show them what it is, and they say, oh, yeah, let's do this now, you know, and so it's really like a traffic cop sometimes, mm -hmm. and that really helps, uh, you know, among many other things that they mm -hmm. are used to. Is that what happened, Gabe, or was it... Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, it was a tremendously uh, rewarding process uh, working with, with Andrew, as, it, as I found it, with, with, with many and most writers, all writers, really, I've had a chance to work with. Um, and the interesting thing that Manhattan Theatre Club itself provided us beyond the O'Neill Theatre Center, we went back to Manhattan Theatre Club, did a reading, <coughs> two readings, I think, and then a, and then a full workshop. And it it uh, it sort of became clear to us that there were two ways to approach this this material. It's, it's difficult source material because it wasn't written with with forming uh, the, the material in mind. Uh, certainly, it was an epic poem written in 1927. And uh, we uh, decided at first, based on the experience of the O'Neill, as we neared a, a workshop at the Manhattan Theater Club, to take an approach, for instance, with the show that, that would uh, essentially make it a cautionary tale, where you weren't, you weren't really uh, concerned about whether the audience enlisted in these characters uh, uh, or, or sort of got behind them emotionally. We intentionally wanted to make Queenie, our lead character, um, basically go down in flames. And uh, when we did the workshop, in fact, we uh, together we together <laughs> committed to that. And it was one of the examples of how a workshop and, and various readings can be extremely informative when you start to see things and also get reactions from people who are seeing it for the first time. We, we, did big, we did a big kick line number at the end of the show where the leading lady got electrocuted. And that was the idea. idea. And for, and a really good idea. <laughs> and, and the two people she had killed moments earlier came out of the oh, body bag. <laughs> 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 
But they did sing. They did sing. <laughs> up just a little bit more now because most of these writers are currently working on um, new musicals even as we speak and I want to bring Susan and Scott in they're not working together but I know you're both working on new projects you're Scott you're working on a musical called kept right now and that's um, that's Henry Krieger and Henry Krieger and Bill Russell and Bill Russell and Susan you're you're working on moonstruck and is that Henry as well Henry and, Henry and John Patrick Shanley. So you're you're working. Uh, we're, we've been talking about things that have happened, and these are happening at the moment. So Susan, you, how does it work? Do you guys meet periodically or every day? Um, uh, this is the first and, and who's your and who's directing them? Um, well, okay. This is the first time uh, ever that I did a musical uh, that basically is being written first. Mm-hmm. And then the director is going to be brought into it. This was a choice of John Patrick Shanley, who wrote the movie of Booster, created that world, created those characters, and jealously guarded those rights for years and years and years and years, um, because he was afraid that someone would do violence to, the, to that little world that he had created. And it took an enormous amount of... Um, gentle stroking on the part of the producers to get him to agree to have it musicalized in the first place. He would flirt with the idea and say, yeah, yeah, I think this mm -hmm. is great. I think these are the people to do it. And then he would say, but only if I write the book. In the beginning, it was only if I write the book, the music, and the lyrics. And he's not a composer or anything. <laughs> and he had never written a musical. So, so in a way, for this discussion, it would be maybe more appropriate to talk, we could talk about Jelly's Last Jam, or um, The Night They Raided Minsky's, in which you, Mike Lockert was working with you on that for yeah. a while, is that right? And you, you said earlier that you would sit in the room with him and 
Well, both of those yes. shows actually were collaborations from the very beginning. I was the last one brought in to both of those shows. Uh, Jelly's Last Jam was George Wolf, who wrote the book as well and directed it. Mm. When we first began, George was not the director of, of Choice. George had never really, in fact, directed anything. But I had written a show with George that ran afoul of the whole right situation had fallen apart, and he brought me into Jelly's Last Jam. And I think the first day that I met George and spoke to him at any length, I said, this man is a director. He's a director. He just has a director's mind. And eventually, we were able to convince the producers that he should direct it. Uh, but in Jelly, as well as in The Night They Rated Minsky's, where I was the last person brought in, and Mike Ockren, who died two years ago, and Susan Stroman, who was his wife, um, and Charles Strauss and Evan Hunter and I worked almost from the beginning in the same room. So that the whole thing was really created by the five of us. Frankly, I find that the most exciting way to work of all. I think that the magic words was either Bobby or Susan who said, you know, this has to play. I, I need something that I can direct that has to play on stage. Um, if an actor comes to me and says, I don't know how to do this line. I, I can't figure out a way to do it. I immediately know that line has to go and it has to be reconceived. Uh, the same is true of the scene. Anything is not going to play on the stage because that's what it's all about in the beginning. And I think one of the luxuries of working with a director is the fact that whereas we work on a moment at a time and keep the whole meaning in mind and keep the whole story and the spine of the story and all that delightful stuff, we tend to lose sight of it very quickly when you're working on, when I'm working on it, and I'm fiercely uh, focused on that particular lyric and that particular moment and that particular character. It's the director who has the whole thing in mind and constantly reminds everyone of the whole piece and the whole art of the piece. Um, it's also incredibly time-saving because uh, if you write the whole thing and then bring it to a director, you know you're going to start all over again. <laughs> Perfect segue to um, the next sort of phase of discussion. Musicals that are ri already written to some degree, at least maybe a first draft or, or a second or a third draft, and um, these two gentlemen next to me. We can talk about any of the other things, guys, that we've, that we've already started, but just to make sure we get to the uh, question and answer period, I'm just going to rush on through the next phase. Um, I'll just skip to you, uh, Greg. John Rando came in to work on You're in Town when it, I know it had been produced down at the Fringe. As, tell us when he came in and then what happened when he came in. Well, we, we, we originally produced uh, You're in Town at the New York, New York International Fringe Festival, which is a, a festival on the Lower East Side that happens in August. Um, and we had a great run. And uh, we had the good luck to have some producers come through and meet with us and say, we think this can have a greater life. Would you, you know, give us the rights to take it further? And we said, okay. 
Um, and so uh, bringing John Rando in, who was our director, was a really crucial step because he was, you know, he was he was a respected director. Um, he he had worked with uh, you know, a wonderful group of, of actors through his career, um, including Nancy Opal um, and others. Uh, and he was really a very important link to, to say, yeah, this is a crazy play. This is really sort of you know, beyond pale, but I, I can make this work, um, and I'll take this to the next step, and that just involved first bringing in, in the right actors, um, bringing in the right creative team when it got to that point, um, and being the, the crucial uh, hub to this, to this process, because Mark and I came from, you know, off-off-Broadway, without, I didn't have any real uh, idea of, of, of coming to the commercial world, but Mark did. And so, at least I, I, I was very suspicious and skeptical of the commercial world. Um, and John was someone who uh, just sort of created a lot of trust, or at least someone you could talk to, to be honest with. Um, and so, uh, he, 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 was in a, in a, he was a crucial link, because the producers could talk to him and say, you know, the writers are out of their minds, talk to them. Um, <laughs> and we could say to them, you know, you know the integrity of the play. So, uh, um, so that, that, it's, it's, I think a good director is a good diplomat also, and he was able to do that. So, um, when John Rando, he, he was essentially brought to you, is that it's safe to say that? Yeah, the Iraqi group, yeah. The, the Iraqi group was the group that saw the show at the Fringe Festival, and they said, yeah, I heard Mike Rigo was, was one of the producers, and I believe he has said, uh, I read this somewhere, that uh, Randall was the only director they knew, um, which is gratuitous. But really, he was the perfect director to um, to shepherd this piece because, uh, and, and yes, but he was brought to us. Uh-huh. They brought him the script and said, "What do you think of this?" And he says, "I like it and I want to do it." So I think we, we were all sort of interested in what sort of discussion you had with him. I mean, did you did you ask him questions about the so that you could understand whether he had got the style and and you know, I'm just wondering how, wondering how that went, and how long did it take before you knew he was the right person to um, to go forward? I think we had a meeting. You know, uh, the Iraqi. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, we had a meeting in uh, the fall of uh, 2000, uh, 1999, I think. Um, and the idea was we were going to have a staged reading, a commercial reading, or a backers audition. I think they're called too. Um, and so the Iraqi group said, okay, I think we found our director, and we met in the conference room of the producer's office, and John came in, and, you know, we just sat down, and Mark and I didn't really say anything at all, and he just started talking about the piece, and we knew immediately that this was a guy who understood the spirit of the show, he understood the comedy of the show, I mean, he was trying to be very serious about the stuff, but kept cracking himself up by what he was saying, <laughs> and, you know, that we understood that, um, that he could sort of play that those two sides, the seriousness and uh, the, the madness of the piece. Um, so I think we knew right away, just by his energy, just by his personality, that he was uh, he was right for us. Did you feel? <coughs> I'll just I'll just shout. So okay. Did Did you feel that uh, the show continued on in the, the direction that it was going, or did it did it veer from what it had been before? No, I think I, yeah. I think I think it stayed what it was meant to be. It actually sort of expanded it, sort of he heightened it, 
you know, the, the thing about Urinetown is that it's sort of a conspiracy of like, you know, we're going it's, it's, to, it, it feels like you're in the middle of a conspiracy to, to, to be doing it because it's, it's, it, it felt like something that should not be done. And that's why you should do it, you know. And 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 that was shared by feeding oh, that. Uh, that that was shared not only by John but by the producers as well. I mean, these were the people who were putting their money and their reputations on the line. But they had the sort of conspirators, you know. We're going to conspire against ourselves. And, and um, so so John served that, um, and he understood uh, that this sort of this this renegade. Uh, spirit was the thing that really was going to propel the thing forward, um, and that was like the defining, the defining energy throughout. Like we're, we're, you know, our our metaphor was like we were a little pirate ship, and we were going to sneak into the harbor and sink the fleet. Um, and so that was uh, that's what it felt like. That's what we wanted to do. And did you do many rewrites once he came aboard? I assume that you did because that's what you do in a musical anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the show was maybe 80% done, or 70%. I, I don't know what the percentage is, but it was largely done. But um, really crucial things happened, um, and they came from different directions, but they also came from the director as well, um, where they said, you know what, uh, we, need, we need a number here that, you know, uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a number in the second act called Run, Freedom, Run, which had been our showstopper, and we didn't really, we, were, we were very protective of it. And John Rando and John Carafa, the choreographer, came to us and said, you know what, we really need like a, a hot dance number um, just before it. We need something for the ensemble to do, um, because this is what happens in a musical, like in Kiss Me Kate, there's a, um, you know, too darn hot. So to write that, and I, I was skeptical of this, Mark was a little bit skeptical, a little bit less so, but we wrote it, and they were absolutely right. It was exactly the right thing to do. And in other, you know, as, as the book writer, there were other moments where we would look at a scene, and John would come to me and say, you know, Greg, you know, is it possible to make this scene uh, funny? And <laughs> now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> so, so he, you know, he was, for me, he was a, a confidant. He was someone, you know, because we were... You know, we, we didn't know what the we didn't know what the score was. You know, we were working with all these uh, big people, and we were not big people. And uh, as far as we knew, uh, we didn't know until it was done. We didn't know what was right and what was wrong. And John was someone I could come to and say, I I I don't think this is the right choice to make. And he would either confirm my suspicion or he would make me see uh, the choice from a different angle. And I, and uh, that trust was really important. So. But there was something interesting. One of your actors, Daniel, just did a reading for Andrew and me, and he said your musical changed less than any other musical he's ever worked on. Oh. Like so that what came into the room. I, it sounds like you added a couple of songs, but what what you started with, you know, was kind of he he thought the whole gist of the show was in place and kind of stayed together. That was his perspective, but it's interesting. If that's true, that is an anomaly. Do not expect that to happen <laughs> with your show. It does happen every once in a while. Um, Scott, you you were, you came in and directed two shows last season that, to some degree, already existed. One being Tick Tick Boom and the other Bad Boy, and both, of course, were very successful. So, explain how, when you came in, 
and what you had to do on both and differently on both? Well, that's going to be a pretty long answer. I'll try to keep it short because it's two totally different shows. Um, let me talk about Tick, Tick, Boom for just a minute because it's actually a very, very unusual circumstance, which you know I actually hope most people don't have to deal with because the fact was our writer was dead. Um, but the show wasn't finished. Uh, if you don't know, Jonathan Larson uh, had been developing a one-man show uh, called at various times Boho Days or Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, around the same time, he was developing Rent. But eventually, Rent took precedence, and he kind of put it aside. Uh, and a couple of producers actually came to me uh, and said, look, we want to do this show. We think it's really wonderful. And we want to show you know, that Jonathan did other stuff. Because a lot of people really felt, I think, that Jonathan Larson kind of wrote Rent. And that's, you know, I had even heard it said, you know, gee, if he had been around, that probably would have been the only thing he would have ever done. Uh, he would have been one of those one-hit wonders. And so I looked at it, and what I got was actually five different scripts, which were very, very different. A, a lot, they had a lot of the same numbers in them, and you know, elements that were the same, but that also things that were totally different. And uh, some videotapes, actually, of Jonathan performing it, because he had done it as a one-man show. And so I kind of said to, to Robin, one of my producers, I said, I think we need a book writer to come in and, and sort of help us shape this. And at the time, uh, Proof had just opened, actually, at Manhattan Theater Club. And I said, uh, not knowing sort of the, the genius I was suggesting, I, I said, um, who's that guy? He wrote that show. You, you worked on it at Manhattan Theater Club. It's like Proof, isn't it? He'd be good for this, don't you think? And he'd never done a musical before. But he, he was enthusiastic. And so what David and I did, and, and David really was a huge, I mean, I, I mean it when I call him a genius. He, he was a huge influence on the show. He came in, and we looked at these five drafts, and I said to him, you know, there are all these monologues where Jonathan kind of says, I said, and then he said, and then I said. I said, you know, it would be really nice to let the actor actually be in the moment occasionally, rather than having to constantly be narrating their own life. And so I said, let's, you know, we need two backup singers anyway. Why don't we make it one guy and one girl instead of, you know, two women or two men? And, and let's uh, let's make it a three-character show. And they can play, like, little parts throughout. And it turned out that they primarily played Michael and Susan, these two very important roles. Uh, but David, what happened was David and I sat down, we kind of talked at this little diner, and then David said, I want to just go away. And he kind of completely restructured the show, but stayed completely loyal to Jonathan. What's amazing is David also said, I don't want to write anything for this. All I want to do is kind of bridge gaps, but I, I don't want to actually add any words. Um, you know, he ended up maybe writing 15% of the show. You can't tell, though. I mean, it, it all sounds like one writer. Um, but he really restructured it. And so we took these songs and kind of moved them around because we couldn't change the songs, um, which is tough when you can't turn to somebody and say, I need a number that does this. Um, we had to kind of look at Jonathan's catalog. And there were one or two songs, actually, which one song, Real Life, specifically, which had been in and out of the show, but it was used in other things. And so we would pull from different sources. 
And Stephen Aremis, our musical director and arranger, also is very influential in that I could turn to Stephen and say, you know, I really need a number between Susan and Jonathan. Go take this song, Therapy, which was a solo, and, and make it into a duet. I think I actually turned to Stephen and I said, you know, make it like one of those Irving Berlin songs, where they, where they kind of sing one thing and then the other one sings, and eventually they overlap. And, and so that's what we did. Um, so that was basically the process on Tiki Boom. We did actually one reading at Manhattan Theater Club, of course. Um, and then the producer said we got the Jane Street Theater. So we, we went right into rehearsals. And we, we did do a lot of development over the course of rehearsals. The, once we got to previews, the show was pretty well set. Right. What, most of what we're talking about is the sort of the creating, the developing, the writing process. Obviously, musicals get written in the casting room to some degree, and I'm sure you're going to talk about that. They get written in the design conversations, they get written in rehearsal, and then they get written in previews uh, when everything works out that's finally written at the end of that process. Um, Bad Boy was different. It had actually been produced in California. Is that, yes. That's right. And so it was a produced musical, and then they came to you to work on the New York production. Is that yeah, I told yeah. them the story last night about how I, how I came to Bathway, so I won't bore you with that again. But so when, when I met with the authors of Bathway, it sounds like we actually had a similar experience, though, on opposite sides of the table. The authors were actually, particularly uh, the, the book writers, there were two book writers, were quite uh, wary about bringing in an outsider. You know, they, they were from Los Angeles, and they had this company called, you know, this, the Actors Game that had a very specific method and they were very leery about bringing anyone else in. But I, I sat down with them, and we kind of chatted, and I think we, we saw the same show, and so we moved along. But they had a very clear idea of what they wanted their show to be, and that's why I think there was a similarity there, and you produced it as well. Um, and they had produced the show in Los Angeles. So I came on board, and it, it then, of course, changed enormously. We did... We did three workshops before the production uh, where we actually staged it. Um, we did it in a very rough way, but that ultimately became the style of the show because we liked it so much. Um, and at the beginning, Batboy, for those of you who saw it, his character can't speak for the first, like, 45 minutes of the show which is tough when your lead can't say anything, <laughs> uh, because it's a little hard to sympathize with them. Uh, and so, and actually the song showed me a thing or two, which was quite late in Act One, was the first time he spoke when I came on board. And so the authors and I sat down and we kind of said, well, we really have to look at this. And, you know, an idea came up to do a song where actually another character sort of spoke for him. We added it, it threw things in and out of the show, the core of the show always stayed basically the same, what that boy's journey was. And I have to say that that was really pretty solid from the moment I came on board. I, you know, we ch certainly changed stopping points in that journey. There were moments which needed to be fleshed out more, or frankly, less. Um, but, and, and the authors and I will talk about that. Uh, but what really we did the most work on was kind of the whole surrounding journey and the rest of the show. What's the show actually about? I mean, I'm a big believer in the theme on musicals and what is your musical actually about? What, what philosophy, what ideas are you trying to explore? And 
I personally believe that you want all of the stories to deal with basically the same theme. It may sound simple, but it's always ends up being harder than that. Um, and on that way, that was one of the problems. We had this central story, but we didn't really have the side stories. And so we had to keep going back to what is this actually about? And are we actually saying that? And I mean, we treated the show as if it was Oedipus, you know, for this silly little show where stuffed animals dance around the stage. You know, it, we really treated it as if it was the most serious story ever told. Um, and to a certain extent, I think we all kind of believe that. Uh, <laughs> So I don't know, what, is that answering your question? No, I think that um, it answers it very well. Um, I'm not trying to cut off everyone's chance to, to say something, but I do want to open the floor up for um, questions, questions from you guys. If, if, if there's something about some element that somebody wants to just pitch in, feel, you know, feel free to do that. I, I certainly don't mind. I, I guarantee you I could talk for at least two hours with each one of these people, at least two hours, um, about the various things they're, they're, that they're working on and have worked on. There's so many great shows we, that, that didn't even get mentioned today, and um, that's, that's just because these guys are doing so much work. Um, we may come back to a few, depending on how many questions and uh, what sort of things you'd like to know. So I will start that. Take my glasses off. I saw a hand over here first. Um, to all of you, thanks for being here. Um, I was just curious. You mentioned Manhattan Theater Club, you know, some workshop venues of the obvious questions about the French Festival. Where are some regional workshop venues that you all have been exposed to that are worth mentioning? Uh, what is it, LA? Or well, most regional theaters have second stages or reading series where they really do develop new work. For musicals? Uh, yeah, yeah, especially uh, for a reading series or a second stage. Thing. So, I mean, I think that's uh, certainly very worthwhile exploring. Shelley the Last Jab was developed in Los Angeles at the Martin Forum. Right. Three workshops and a regional theater production there before it ever came to New York. There are also a number of places, like the O'Neill is the big one that I've been to, but there's also the New Harmony in, where's that, Indiana, which I haven't been to, and that place that you two have been to, is that Sundance thing? That was for an awkward thing. Oh, right, no, Sundance in the summer is the thing, right? There are a lot of regional theaters. I'm doing a piece of George Bush, going to be at Berkeley, the Globe theaters do a lot of work, and oh, the, the, everyone. Goodspeed. Good, oh, Goodspeed. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, there was just some flyer I got from Theater Works in Palomar that Scott, your name was on. They're doing some sort of developmental thing, right? Well, I, I was just going to say, I'm actually getting on a plane later today to go to San Jose Rep for their New Works initiative to do, in fact, a new musical that we're developing. There are, you should look for places that have sort of new works initiatives. A lot of them will do at least one musical. And the, the show that I'm doing right now is, is not by particularly famous writers. Um, so you should look for what companies have that. A lot of them do, I think, these yeah. new works initiatives. Well, the, the Prince Music Theater does oh, yeah. all new, practically all new music. So, um. Seattle's got new mm -hmm. theaters that have now. They've, they've taken, I mean, what's happened, I think, in regional theaters is everyone 
this new piece is by, that I'm doing is by Tony Kushner. He's quite famous. George Wolf, very famous, and he's not famous. And we are really, you know, you get squished when you preview in New York. You just do. It's a brutal time. I don't recommend it for anyone. Um, so what's happened is instead of really being able to experiment, although the public theaters have been an artist in residence for this year, you really can be safe down there. As soon as you open to the press, which you really know, they, they perceive it, I think, as, well, you're done, right? I mean, we're just going to review you like you are finished, and it's unfair, but that's what it is. And I think more and more people, I mean, all of us have started our projects not in New York. And I think that's some of the regional theaters that come up. And every single regional theater I, I know of, you know, major and small ones like the Apple, what was one in Chicago? In Chicago has become this really great center for musicals. The Apple Tree. The Apple Tree. Yeah. It's a major start, you know, last five years was in Skokie, Chicago. So the great thing is that like, all these American theaters are becoming part of the process that once was exclusively New York and it's now shared, too much I think is is better. I mean it's hard moving your family around, but so be it, you know, I think it's actually great. The Prince is with the American Music Theater Festival. The Prince basically is the American Music Theater Festival, yes. Another question? I saw this hand back here. Uh, my question is for the directors. Is it um, always more enticing for you to come up with a project near the genesis of it, or can something that's very far along the development process be just as enticing? I think it's very individual. It depends on the piece, really. Um, I love the collaboration, so I'm always very inspired by being there at the beginning of a project. I, mean, I just love working um, with... Uh, one of the main reasons of the musical theater, because there's so many people to collaborate with, and you're sort of not there by yourself. But, you know, if somebody plops a really great musical on my desk, I'm not going to say, oh, no, you know, I need to be there from the start. So it... Uh, you know, sometimes, though, to be quite honest, it, it is easier to be there from the start because um, it, uh, it it can be difficult to um, initiate rewrites with something that has been completed, totally completed. Um, I think it, it sometimes is a little uh, more difficult to convince writers and composers that perhaps this piece that they've lived with in its entirety is not finished. Even though they, they kind of know it, it, it's difficult to come in and say, but I think actually the entire second act, I, I love the piece, it's inspiring, the entire second act doesn't really work. To look at those faces at that moment that you say that is, is really The ideas are great, the talent is there. I mean, you can see that, and that's very inspiring as well. <laughs> Let's start in the back. You in the back? Yeah. Uh, my question is, as a composer, lyricist, assistant director, question I've been asking all my life every time I see a musical. If it's a musical, why is anybody talking? Because that's what they're called. That's the definition of a musical. I mean, operas, they don't, and that's why it's an opera. That's not an answer. Also, there's I mean, I'm just interested. Why are you asking me the question? Is I ask because what are you searching for? Every time I sit in the audience, yeah
and the music stops and people talk, I don't know why I'm sitting there. Well, maybe you've seen a lot of musicals with bad books. Uh, well, maybe I haven't seen one with a good book. Well, um, I think that's an unanswerable question, actually. That goes to taste, and it's not, that's, that's just an unanswerable thing, so. I have a question, sort of back to what Andrew Lippa said. Does it, uh, anyone have thought about this, but does the quintessential American musical in its sort of perfect form necessarily have two acts? And how does the answer to that question affect the way you view stories as you try to bend them and shape them into two act structures that they either do, either they either are or are not really fit to have? How does that affect the development process of an idea? You know, I think you tell the story and then you decide later. I think you just go about telling the story and how you're going to tell the story and then write it. And then at some point, I think, uh, at some point you just say, oh, well, I think the natural act break is here, or we can't have an act break. I don't think you start out saying, we're going to write a first act, and this is I, You do that in movies a lot. Um, well, the reason I ask you is just I tend to think of them as having two acts, and but is that not an assumption everyone makes, that they sort of have two acts? They usually do, but I, I think that you don't start out thinking this will be the first act, and that will be the second act. I think just start out writing the story. And that changes, I mean, often where, it's certainly my experience, often where the act break will be, will change uh, during the course of the development. But Bobby, um, pageants didn't have two acts in No, because we wanted to keep the event, not unlike the forest line. You yeah. just sat down and at the end of it, somebody got a job, the audition was over, the pageant was over. You really have to identify the reason to come back after an audition, what takes place time-wise during that, but it, it changes. The brilliance of that show, which I remember, I don't know if you ever saw it, but Pageant was like such, such an incredible experience that you really, on so many levels, it was subversive. It was, you know, it was just like, I remember it. That the half-life of that show goes on and on and on. And part of that was you went on a ride, and then it ended. There wasn't that relief, you know, from from these, from this cast. There was, there was a subversiveness even to not letting you go. And I think that was part of the design, you know, of the one or the two act, you know, but it's an interesting... It was an intermission, and it was talked about, well, they've got to sell drinks and all this nonsense. I said, but it's, we're, we're not a musical comedy. I want this to somehow play as though it's, it's a real happening event. So we, we all... In the business, having a one-act musical is a very... I mean, this is not the topic. It's a huge thing for the concession stands, and you hear about the producers all the time. You hear about it all the time. I will. I, will. I mean, it's unbelievable. They have to have their Twizzlers. <laughs> with the with the wild party, we had we, the workshop wasn't one action; it was a two-hour, ten-minute, I guess, uh, event. And our, it was our 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 theory that we really wanted to do that: transport the audience and not let them go from this this small two halves to a certain extent that can also, at the end of the experience, uh, be joined again. But. Um, uh, we were able to do it in that case. But there are some shows, like Pageant was a great example, and some where, where, where it, it doesn't make sense to do that. And I'd say the, in the commercial world, there is a, a trend towards uh, um, intermissionless shows now. Certainly. Plays, certainly. And uh, so I think the piece, like Susan said, has to dictate it, and, and you follow that. And then other outside influences 
come in. You either can adjust to them successfully or you can't. And, and uh, um, Have you ever seen Coruscant in an intermission? Really horrible. Yeah. Horrible, really? Yeah. Cassie beat me back on stage in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> With some Twizzlers. Yeah. <laughs> Here is like, let me, and I Because we wanted to write something which was um, sort of archetypical in its structure, we wanted to have two acts because that's that seems to be the tradition. I mean, that's like the depth of our tradition is you have the first act, you have an intermission, you have a second act, um, and the biggest hurdle was trying to figure out how to make an act one finale, how to close an act one properly, um, and so that was certainly the biggest the, the biggest hurdle. Um, and as far as liking it, I, I don't know. I was with two minds throughout the whole thing. I guess maybe I still am. Um, <laughs> but I mean, but you, you, you. I, I think when you're when you're creating a show and you're working, you know, uh, everyone must feel this that there's things that you know that you love and there's things that you know that you feel just fail and you get away with it, um, <laughs> and uh, you kind of live with that. But. Uh, uh, the, the, the hurdle. How how to how to close. First act properly. That's that's the toughest. That was the toughest thing to figure out how to do. That's one of the fun things I think about doing a two-act musical is that it imposes not not for false reasons, but just for sheer I think storytelling reasons, certain obligations, rules, opportunities, hurdles, however you want to describe them, and that's how to end your first act and how to begin your second act and and, and many other things many other things as well. Um, uh, that that's I think that's why I like them over um, one act. However, I can't tell you how many times I've said to writers working on projects, maybe this would work better as a one act. That usually happens early on when before more work has been done and it's been proven to be um, long enough and sufficient for a full length. So, I have another question, you sir. When uh, director and writers are working on a musical uh, in developing it prior to a commitment to a production. Uh, I hate to sort of drag this to the basement, but at what point the, the writers own the words and the music. At what point does an agreement happen between uh, any kind of formal agreement between a director and writers? Is there a contract? What kind of things 
I mean, essentially, the writers, you know, the drama skill contract says the writers own all those words and notes. So a director could be involved in a long development process and then suddenly, uh, you know, they want a new director or a producer comes in and says we need so-and-so. Actually, the Guild has a policy. You know, this has come up time to time. I'm on the uh, council of the Guild. And if the director starts from scratch with the writers and, and really contributes to the development of the musical, writers feel that the director is entitled to share in the future life of the project. Um, it's been a sore point for a long time, but, but in fact, if the writer does contribute at that level, uh, uh, director rather, and of course it's there. This is quite controversial though, I mean we shouldn't really get into yeah. it probably too deeply here. I will say one thing, you know, as a director, the authors can't actually give you the contractual right to direct their show. What they can say, and they can say it on paper if they want to, is we will do our best to have you be the director of our show, but it's actually the producer. The producer or the theater hire, uh, options the piece and then hires everyone else um, with, obviously with conversations with the writers and ultimately with the director as well. It's awkward. It's really awkward because it's like anything, it's possible to um, right. You know, and it's sometimes someone who has no impact at the beginning, and just has a great impact throughout it, and how does your, how Of making a musical is remaking a musical, 
And so everything really has to be up for grabs. And you have to go to your favorite, most wonderful moment, the, the you know, the If I Loved You scene from Carousel that you think you wrote, and, and go, is this serving my show? Is this serving what we're doing here? And, and be willing to ask the very, very hard questions to yourself. If you're going to ask them of your collaborators, you have to ask them of yourself as well. And so I found that at first, whenever, if something is particularly beloved and the director suggests moving it or cutting it or changing it in a drastic way, of course your initial reaction, at least mine is like, <laughs> you know, mine <laughs> um, But you live with it over time, and I found that the wonderful directors I've worked with are also psychologists. And they're also parental, <laughs> and they're also in many ways hand holders, and they're very smart because they understand the notion of what a writer goes through and how difficult that can be. And I don't think I, I think always you find that place because if you're really working on the same piece toward the same end, you will find it together. Sometimes the answer is just to do it too. The thing I resisted most in Violet was there's, there's a character that was not in the story that that Susan felt should be in the story in the second act. And um, I just, I just didn't want it there. I didn't think it needed to happen. I wrote the uh, act without it. We did a reading that was never public, and I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> you know. So sometimes you, you get to that point. If, if there's no further arguing that's possible, you know, and both sides has a point, even if it's just an informal, you know, you invite the five actors you know and sit around a dining room table read the material and see if it works. That's the key. It's, it, I think it's hard to talk about cutting songs and cutting scenes and, and doing, I mean, doing those sort of rewrites when you're sitting around the table essentially creating the piece. I mean, you do that. But you really talk about cutting songs and, and rewriting and adding scenes once you have the opportunity to see it because it only truly exists. I'm not telling you anything you don't know in front of an audience. And it's hard with the reading because you only get one shot, whereas in previews you have a longer period of time. But you have to be able to listen bravely to what the audience says because they will bluntly tell you when they're bored. And they will also ecstatically tell you when they're happy. The trick is to be able to agree on what's causing that excitement and what, what that boredom is. The only danger with that is that, is that something that Susan reminds us of the reading is almost always an audition. So this particular passage of the play preceded a reading that we did, and we cut an enti the entire passage because we knew two-thirds of it was not successful. So we, we had the experience of testing it out with actors, but we weren't going to let New York see. Yeah, right. Readings are tougher for this than, um, than actual previews. And you obviously want as many previews as you can so that you can, you can rewrite the show if you need to. Um, yes? Did any of you have any collaborations that you felt did not work out, and then how did you handle it beyond the things we talked about, psychology, compromise, etc.? You mean between writers and directors yeah. specifically? Right. If every, if everybody has one of those stories, you're welcome to tell it, but <laughs> you must not mention any names or give any clues away, because I'll have to work with these people. Yeah. Yeah. David Gordon is a downtown director, fantastic choreographer, uh, works with Philip Black all the time, uh, wonderful, 
and we did something in San Francisco and LA called the First Picture Show, and it just was crap. It just did not work, you know. And I think because the collaboration was not, it's what Frank Lester used to call everybody wasn't at the same level, and I don't mean the level of quality, I mean the level of we, we were baking the same cake. We were. I was making a pie, and he was making a carburetor, and it was a mess. <laughs> Because we weren't really communicating about what the hell were we doing. And, and you know, and I've seen his pieces before that and after that, and they're fantastic. And uh, it was just one of those things that we hadn't made those four decisions of, you know, Michael Mayer called the political decisions of, uh, of what exactly do you want to see? Exactly what do you want to see? And that's why I think musicals are so difficult because it's a committee, it's inherently a committee headed by, you know, a woman or a man who's at the helm of this huge tanker. And in that was, I watched it go from something that was actually core and avant-garde piece. And when, when we came aboard, like, I did not want to do with it so much. I wanted more music and more song form. And I kept thinking, this doesn't feel right. You know, that little voice in the your head, what I should have really done. And I'll, I'll, it, I'll use it for the rest of time. And, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to bring it down. And I just thought, maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, I was right because it was the piece that I was looking at that was sending it really always. And we went to San Francisco and it was wrong. We went to LA and it was wronger. It was just not getting worse and worse and worse. And we're all still friends and all that, but the collaboration just was all this way. You know, and we had a dramaturg working with us and she had a different thought about what we were doing. It was just one of those things that didn't work, but I learned so much from that. I, I kind of thank God for that experience because it's a visceral reaction now when I sense there's something that's being said. You know, the voice is going, abort! <laughs> so it teaches, you know, that when you're not on the same thing, there's almost a panic button that, that sets in. And you can tell that early now? I, I, I um, you know, when we were in um, La Jolla with Early Modern Millie, which Susan saw, I mean, that show out there was was just not good. The second act was fine, and the first act was not good. And Dick Scanlon, who was a great writer and a great friend, we basically everyone got great reviews and all of this stuff, and we looked at each other and we thought, wait, this is crap. You know, the first act just isn't good. And that panic set in when you know that it's, it's what you're experiencing, you trust it, and so we went away and rewrote the whole thing. And so I, I, I like it. It was really because of that first experience, that visceral, I have a question about that. It did do well in La Jolla. Um, were the audiences telling you they were really liking that first act, but yeah. you sensed that there was something wrong? You know, it's mm -hmm. funny because I was, um, Susan saw it. I kept saying, this is an awful, isn't it? And she kept saying, It's much more about Dick and Rob Ashford and Michael Mayer. It's, uh, I saw the performance that the Variety guy saw, and it was like a Mazda. It was, I mean, not one laugh, not one. I couldn't believe it. And Dick and I went, and we flew back seven apple martinis afterwards. Well, that was done. And this review comes out, and I thought, that is not the show that we experienced, that the audience has experienced. 
No one. Literally, there was not one lot in the first match, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the truth will set you free, ladies. <laughs>
to do. And Tricky is a director that sort of but it, asks them off. It really makes the difference, don't you think? I mean, it really is the difference in, in being able to go with that critical yes. self, that little that little beat that goes, you know what, that section is not working. I feel it went fine, and everybody, you know, liked it, but I feel it. It's not working. Something's mm -hmm. wrong. It's, it's corrupt. It's not true. It's not honest. It's not getting there. I wonder if, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, if Bobby can, I hope you don't mind, but I really want to know, I've heard that the paper mill that you've been asked to do Flower Jones song, which is coming in this season, with great word of mouth about it, but I, I've heard that the folklore is that paper mill had asked you to do it and you examined it and realized that there was a whole other musical happening in there. So it seems to talk to as a director, now you're working with Richard Rogers, and you've totally revamped that show, haven't you? So, I mean, that's a, a different kind of relationship, in a, in a sense, because you really, it's a new, it's almost like a new musical. Well, in a way it is, because there's not a word of um, the original book in the show. David Henry Wong wanted to do this show and had a, a long passion about it, whether it was filled with stereotypes that initially his generation um, riled against and said, this is not us, this is not accurately portraying us, while secretly sort of loving it. In fact, they can see this fabulous movie, Technicolor movie, filled with Asian-American people singing and dancing and being glamorous, and a beautiful score. And I have never, you know, there, there are so many revivals right now happening, many of them terrific work, but this one spoke to me, and it's another sideshow analogy of, of people to the left of life who carve out a place for themselves. And, and I suggested to David, let's put a show business frame on this, and bringing with his family background of M. Butterfly and Golden Child, it's, it's been a very interesting journey we've had. We made a new show. We took this score and um, removed characters and completely threw it up in the air. So it's, it's a radical experiment that, that played very well in Los Angeles. But I've had these films we were talking about. The Mark Taper Forum is not used to having big musical comedies. So these people went crazy for this. And, and I would still go, that's not it, though. I know I can do better, but it stopped the show, Bobby. Well, it didn't stop it for me. I get it, you know, I know I can make it better. So we're still not settling on the success of that. And a lot of rewrites are taking place uh, before we before we come in. Um, so, you know, I I think um, we probably have time for one more question. And I've seen this hand back here for quite a while. Uh, I don't mean to cut things off, but I I believe there are other things that need to happen during the day, so we'll, we'll take this question and... It's a follow-up on the subject of following your instinct. Has anyone ever had the reverse experience, namely that your instincts tell you you're right on and the audiences, for whatever reason, are just not responding? And if that's the case, what then do you do? Uh, I think you have to... Uh, sorry, to a certain extent, you've got to follow your audience a little bit. I mean, you don't want to sort of go to the lowest common denominator all the time, but you can't tell it from one performance. That's the big trick, and that's the problem with readings, or even, even two performances. You know, I've had that experience where, like, for some reason, at my first previews, I always get more laughs than I ever get for the rest of the entire run of the show. And I always wonder why that is. But there are things that will work at one performance which won't work other times. And you kind of have to sit back, I think. I mean, I don't know if others agree with me. And sort of look at it over a course of a little bit of time and say, okay, that did seem to work. And even though I really love that, nobody else does because they're doing this at the end of the number. And 
And you do, to a certain extent, have to listen to your audience, I think. Uh, I, I also uh, am a fan of asking pointed questions to people, not only people I know, but people I don't know. Some, oftentimes when you're developing a show, you get to do talkbacks where like, the creators will come out and talk to the audience. And I'm always interested, if there's a segment of the show that we've all been talking about that we weren't sure about or it seems to play okay tonight or whatever, but I like to ask the audience, did anybody here remember that part where he had the knife in his hand and, you know, whatever, and ask people if they felt uh, what they felt about that section, because then the, you hear specifically from people what their reactions are. Even people with an unschooled way of speaking about a musical, like my mother, who can give you incredible insights, because they just tell you what they felt when they saw it, and you go, you know, there's something to that. And I was in a cafe right after that workshop of the Wild Party, and talk about brave. He came right over, I was sitting with my friend Tina, and he said, okay, body bag, in or out. <laughs> Latte. <laughs> wow, but it was very like true. If he really did, like I want to know exactly. Well, I have to say also from Janine, I and I did a show together where we uh, co we were music staff on a, 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 a comedy green show, and um, Janine Janine uh, about talking about changing things and working uh, in the show. She's this great phrase that she that I have adopted, which is I know I'm going to have an unpopular point of view here. And then you say the thing, and I learned it from her because it's really true. Because you have to have the bravery, I think, it takes a certain amount of courage to say to your collaborators. I think, ladies and gentlemen, we'll leave on that point. <laughs>